what traps await us, potential shadows and shortcomings. The integral model combines both horizontal and vertical dimensions. One of my concerns is that as an integral ideas become popular, the integral model may be collapsed into a kind of theoretical flatland. Why? Because the horizontal dimensions of quadrants and types can be apprehended by people who do not mature to post-conventional cognition and experience. Therefore, these horizontal dimensions may become the focal point of popular thinking and applications. This can be done while largely ignoring or misunderstanding the higher reaches of vertical dimensions, such as spiritual experiences and stages. I therefore suspect that most of the major traps will be developmental. Yeah, um, and of course we'll get into some of that in a little more. Yeah. But I do think that it does seem to me that many of the traps uh, that we're going to, be, going to be facing uh, really do center around development and our own immaturity. Yes, absolutely. And whether we're even aware of, of development, if we are, how seriously we take it, if we understand it correctly, development is not. When you look at developmental stages in another person, for example, you try to figure out what stage another person is at. It's not to label them or rank them or confine them or in any way to judge them. It's a way to understand them. It's a way to help increase communication by understanding some of the essential points of their worldview and their motivation and their values. And so just as you probably have some sense of the various stages that you yourself come from, whether those are, you know, rightly or wrongly assessed, as we earlier talked about, but we also form ideas uh, about others. And those can be, you know, massively misused or they can be beautifully used. And I think, indeed, that's one of the traps around developmental as well. You go through several. What are some of the traps that likely weight us? Each of us could probably create our own list, but the following may be especially important. General traps of multiple stages. One, devaluing one's present stage and those people and institutions still at it. Two, egocentric misuse of one's new stage or perspective. I'll read these and then we'll discuss them. Three, overestimating one's new stage or perspective. Four, segregation and failure to engage the mainstream. And then transpersonal traps, traps specific to transpersonal levels. Settling for mere intellectual understanding of higher states and stages and complacency and stagnation, the failure to keep moving. So general traps, one, devaluing one's previous stage. There seems to be an automatic developmental tendency to devalue one's previous perspective and stage, as well as those people and institutions still centered in it. This is probably most obvious in adolescence. However, integral practitioners are not immune. For integralists, a common trap is devaluing the previous stages of individualistic ego development and the green meme of value development, as well as those people and institutions that espouse them. This raises an intriguing question. Well, let's get to that in a moment. Devaluing and ha developing an allergy to one's previous stage very common in development, and one of the real traps for interests. Yeah, I think it seems to me it's almost it's almost part of the developmental process that right. we react against where we're coming from. Right. And, uh, uh, probably the best we can do is to be aware of this and recognize it's not particularly healthy or helpful. Right. I think it is. I think what we see in 
in growth and development is a process of differentiation and then integration. And so the, during the process of differentiation, there really is a healthy push away from the previous stage, but that healthy push can very easily turn into uh, an unhealthy push and an allergy and even a dissociation, even a pathology. Mm -hmm. And we certainly, I think, because the green stage of development, which is the pluralistic stage, the postmodern stage, metasystemic stage, and the stage that essentially drives the boomers and the boomer culture and postmodernism and cultural creatives, because that's the stage that is immediately prior to the first truly integral stages. People that are at integral stage, too many of them really have it in for green. And they're also just even helpfully trying to discuss the aspects of green pluralism that prevent transformation into integral, systemic, cohesive understanding. It just becomes too much. It's just, this is wrong with green, and this is wrong with green, and that's wrong with green, and look out for that, and look out for that, and look out for that. I have myself done an entire book on what's wrong with green called boomeritis. <laughs> but in, in, in most cases, when I introduce this stage, I first have a section called The Many Gifts of Green, because green as a healthy and in some ways radically new stage of development that emerged in the 60s was behind an enormous number of extremely positive things, starting with the civil rights movement and mm -hmm. feminism and environmentalism and ecology movements, the number of positive, compassionate, de-repressing, liberating moves that Green introduced are astonishing and, and truly to its credit. So those are always worth remembering. But it just too often integral slides into looking at, at the underside of Green and its dysfunctional side and the sides that went wrong with it. And so this is, a, uh, I think, a really, really good reminder because the person that is really kind of aggressively looking down on Green is almost certainly themselves caught in a dysfunctional, pathological reaction. They have a green subpersonality that they haven't integrated, and they're projecting it out there and hating it out there. And so that just means that their own differentiation and integration has not gone well, and they should take this devaluation, uh, excessive devaluation, as an indication that something's not quite right in their own house. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I agree with you. I think this is something that is uh, a general possible problem just with development in general. Yeah, it does, it does seem to be, doesn't it? Yeah. But it's um, each stage is like a bunch of reformed smokers uh, <laughs> when it comes to the previous stage. Uh, yeah. So then I thought you had some exquisite stuff here. When you say this raises an intriguing question, what are the optimal attitudes to cultivate and hold towards people at different developmental stages? Perhaps they are the following. Care and compassion for those at lower stages, because these are people we may be privileged to help and serve. Love for those at the same stage, because these are our peers, our community, and our sangha. And then finally, gratitude 
to those at later stages because these are our teachers, role models, and wayfinders. Never heard that topic even addressed, and I think your suggestions are beautiful, just beautiful. Great. Well, uh, that actually, I hadn't thought about either myself until, you know, preparing that talk. And then it just, it, you know, it's ob- as soon as one starts getting into the developmental uh, ideas, then, of course, the question does come, how do we relate to, right. to people at earlier or later stages? And, and uh, those are the ones that seem appropriate to me. Maybe there are others, too. I can think of empathic joy or what the Buddhists call sympathetic joy, happiness at the happiness of others as an appropriate response to those people who are more mature than us too. Right. But it's a wonderful thought and I think an important part of one's practice because you are always running into people that are lower, same stage or higher stage and making that part of a correct, if you will, attitudinal adjustment is a great idea. Second point, egocentric misuse of one's new stage or perspective. This is the tendency to misuse a new stage or perspective in order to bolster one's ego and esteem. At the least, this produces a sense of specialness. At worst, it spawns inflation and grandiosity centered on ideas such as, I am an integralist. This is using integral ideas to strengthen one's ego rather than to transcend one's ego. At spiritual levels, this becomes spiritual materialism, the tendency to use spiritual insights and experiences for egocentric purposes. In my own experience, this trap is very hard to avoid. Many a time, I've had valuable insights or experiences, and in the next moment, found myself fantasizing about how I could use them for fame and recognition. Condemnation of the process and oneself is no help. Rather, compassion for one's own humanness and the necessary limitations that go with this are useful healing responses. Actually, they're probably good healing responses for almost any of our neuroses. <laughs> True. Um, but any type of insight can be put to that misuse, can it? Yeah, and I, frankly, I think almost any of them will. Uh, there's some principle whose name I forget, uh, some person's name is given to it, that anything can be misused will be misused. And the yeah. same is true with uh, with insights and even yeah. you know, deep spiritual yeah. insights. As long as there's a separate self-sense, then right. it'll be used to aggrandize that self-sense, or will there, there will be the tendency to do it right. and the temptation to do so anyway. Right. And self-forgiveness and understanding as you say, is the appropriate response for that. Yeah, uh, it's, it's so important to recognize self-condemnation of, your, of one's, one's flaws is just, just reinforces them. Tell a joke about, look who thinks he's nobody. Oh, uh, yeah, I haven't heard that in a long time. Yeah, that was, that, I'm trying to remember that. Well, yes, uh, the rabbi who... who uh, goes to the altar and wails, oh, Lord, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. And his assistant who who comes by and is extremely impressed <laughs> says, oh, Lord, yes, I too, I am nobody, I'm nobody. And then the, the cleaner comes by and is also impressed and, and uh, also also uh, cries in front of the altar, Lord, I'm nobody, I'm nobody, which, at which stage the assistant turns to the rabbi and says, look who thinks he's nobody. <laughs> Even a sentiment like that can be used for egoic uh, 
grandiose city. So. Yes, I have a theory that there's nothing that can't be used in the service of the ego. <laughs> <laughs> um, Walsh's Law. There you go. <laughs> Three, overestimating one's new stage or perspective. It is easy to fall into the trap of overestimating one's new perspectives and developmental stages. In general, this takes the form of what might be called perspectival overreach or perspectival reductionism. Here, we seek to overapply the novel perspective or idea, overinterpret phenomena with it, and reduce all phenomena to its purview. At its worst, this becomes the assumption that one has found the truth instead of a truth. That's a huge problem, isn't it? And, and it's one of the sort of main things that prevents an integral view. Because when you think you have the truth, you stop including all those other truths that need to be included. Yeah, and uh, I think, it's again, it's one of those things that just, for me anyway, has been very, very hard to avoid. And I think we, we just fall into the trap of assuming that uh, our current perspective is the truth, and then right. we wake up and uh, realize that we haven't. The, the Castaneda teachings, which were so big, you know, 20 years ago, there was, a, there was some nice things in there, and one of them was the traps of a person of knowledge, and one yeah. of the one of the traps was clarity. Yeah. And the implication, as I, I took it, was that when we feel really clear about the way things are, then that's, uh, that's a seduction, a double seduction, because it reinforces the idea that that's, that is the way things are, and we finally understand things. And also, we get attached to it, and we have trouble recognizing that what's required to develop is actually being willing to be unclear. Yeah. And that uh, I had always assumed that learning went from clarity to more clarity to more clarity, but actually right. it goes from clarity to confusion, <laughs> not knowing, uh, to an integrated integration of a, a, a more a fuller knowing. Growth seems to require a willingness not to know and to be right. confused. Yeah, um, that every stage of growth at some point there's the, the famous cloud of unknowing. Ah, very good. And something that you correctly point out, it really should just not be forgotten and absolutely crucial. And then four, elective segregation, failure to engage the mainstream. One of the gifts of our mobile technological culture is the ability to be and communicate with like-minded people. It is also one of the contemporary cultural traps. The danger is that in being able to find like-minded people, we can fall into a kind of elective segregation in which we communicate almost exclusively with those who share our views. What sociologists find is that this selective communication tends to reinforce people's more extreme viewpoints, whereas mixing communicating with more diverse populations tends to moderate extreme views. Without extensive communication with the mainstream, integral ideas will not be challenged and honed by criticism, and neither will we, and will not permeate the mainstream culture, nor produce the changes that are so desperately needed. So that is one of the paradoxical traps of uh, worldwide Internet communication, is that your communication doesn't get wider, it gets narrower. Yeah, certainly. I think we're seeing that with the dramatic shifts in media at the moment, that it's going to be increasingly possible for us, for example, just to, to get the news we want to get. And, right, exactly. And, uh, that's a very, very tricky 
circumstance we're setting up for ourselves. Yeah, um, people log on nowadays, and it's just myuniverse.com. There you go. And it's just my handful of friends, my interests, my particular shopping spots, my etc. And and even worse, my particular perspective, worldview, values, and little anything which reinforces my belief system, basically. One um, can avoid challenges. Right, exactly. And that has got to have a deleterious effect on a culture as that culture grows. And I suspect one of them is just simple, flat-out narcissism. And you just sent me a recent article showing that narcissism indeed is increasing. And it's not just a throwaway sort of um, you know, armchair cultural critic. I mean, there's real reasons to be concerned about the level of narcissism being the highest it's ever been since they've been testing this. That really is a, a bad prognosis for a culture. Yeah, indeed. And I was uh, the reason I sent you that article was I just didn't know there was actual quantitative data showing that there'd been dramatic increases on narcissism scores in the culture over the last few decades. Right. Even school kids today, which means they're, they're more narcissistic than our generation, and we were named the me generation, for heaven's sakes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's getting worse. And, of course, individuals with narcissism are not really the um, kind of self-promoting, self-preening, confident people that you might think. People with high levels of narcissism actually have very low self-esteem, have a lot of trouble with relationships, have a difficult time holding a job, have much higher rates of depression. It's not the specialness that the educational system thought it was when they started the self-esteem movement. It has pretty badly backfired. And we are, you know, paying for that in the culture at large. Yeah, yeah. So we certainly don't want integral ideas to become the core of a new narcissistic, you know, minority. So something to watch out for. Yeah, and, uh, and of course, there's an inevitability to this. I mean, there's no question that integral ideas, like all ideas, will be misused. I think right. that's, you know, one of the things we're, we're talking about, the, the challenge for each of us is how do we, what can we do to, to minimize that in ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's just kind of a constant, especially in spiritual paths. I mean, the spiritual realization is essentially the uh, opposite of narcissism. It's the transcendence of the self-contraction and of self-obsessing ways. So, it, you know, something we even even more especially need to keep an eye out under those circumstances. And it's a lifetime's work. And exactly. <laughs> then you cover some transpersonal traps, settling for merely intellectual understanding. Spiritual traditions emphasize that their most important goals are to help people experience and stabilize higher states and stages ourselves. Unfortunately, it's a lot easier to read and talk about transpersonal states and stages than it is to directly experience them. However, without direct experience, transpersonal insights and ideas remain what Immanuel Kant called empty concepts. The extent to which we can truly understand and appreciate transpersonal concepts depends on the extent we have had the experience to which the concepts refer. 
Without such direct experience, the deeper meaning of these concepts, or what philosophers call their higher grades of significance, will escape us. But what is most problematic is this. We won't recognize that their real meaning and significance are escaping us. So we're caught in a trap and don't even know it's a trap. Right, yeah, yeah. Yes, that, gee, I said that well. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and oh boy, what a, you know, a mess when that happens. And so just getting the problem pointed out, of course, is the first step, and then working to reduce it through an integral practice and spiritual practice. But I think that's one of the main traps that you that you, you pointed out here. Yeah, and I was actually we were talking about this earlier, and I was giving <laughs> I was unfortunately giving an example of that from my own life, where I thought I was understanding and appreciating developmental uh, perspectives, and and only later realized that I they I really not imbibed and embedded them. Yeah, yeah. And maybe, and it's probably true that we can only recognize our failure to understand, uh, really understand ideas once we've more deeply understood them. I think that one of the reasons that I have come up with so many things called fallacies is that these are mistakes I made myself. And in really painfully unwinding them, I had a better understanding of them. Ah, uh, yes. So everything from the, you know, the pre-trans fallacy to the level line fallacy, the single boundary fallacy, um, these are all things that I had committed and in trying to dig myself out of it, decided to share with others the, the steps of you know, me getting into it and then what I managed to do to get out of it, if, if get out of it I indeed did. <laughs> so we should anticipate many more fallacies. Uh, many, many me? more since I still have <laughs> at least a third of my life to live. I'm just uh, getting started on all of the messes that I have gotten into. Oh, good, good. <laughs> so how do we foster direct transpersonal experiences and spiritual insights and thereby make ourselves better able to appreciate the spiritual heights of integral theory? Answer by engaging in spiritual practices and related practices as fully as we can. This is a key requirement for anyone who aspires to truly understand and communicate the integral vision. And as we've said, the spiritual understanding is right at the heart of any genuine integral perspective. Yeah, and we keep coming back to this idea of the centrality and importance of some sort of direct practice to foster one's own growth. It just seems to be the, you know, as well as you were saying, it's probably as important as anything in the whole integral panoply of ideas. Right. Next transpersonal trap, complacency and stagnation, the failure to keep growing. Developmental complacency is settling for the comforts and seductions of one's current stage of development rather than continuing to develop. The cost is stagnation. Problems arise when one uses abilities primarily for ego gratification rather than for further ego transcendence and for service to others. And that's an awfully tempting seduction, isn't it? Um, particularly as, as you start to make some progress on the spiritual trail and start to get some of the paranormal powers, cities, um, or exceptional states of bliss and joy. It's really, really seductive to get lost in those. 
Yeah, well, I don't, certainly don't have any city's uh, unusual powers, but uh, you're right. It does get more comfortable at each stage, and that's yeah. very nice, and also gets more seductive because one does get a little more skilled, a little. you do see a little more clearly. You have a little more maybe uh, uh, interpersonal skill or sensitivity or capacity to pick up stuff up, and all the residual ego... Uh, desires, cravings, fears, etc., uh, will use those new abilities. And so there's not only a ten- tendency to misuse these skills, but it gets more and more comfortable. The, the Indians, of course, have that wonderful metaphor of the God realm, the idea that the image of uh, the realm of the gods who have all these uh, enjoyments and delights and right. Of course, they just live in existential stupor and aren't particularly motivated to keep practicing. Right. And I, I, I sometimes worry that uh, you know it, it's a tricky trap. And, it is. And uh, you know, I think you know spiritual teachers can fall into it. Even it's a hard one, and that's we need each other. We need each other to keep pushing ourselves. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And the point is that teachers, as well as anybody, can fall into the God realm. And I think the worst handicap of the God realm is that you can't get enlightened in the God realm. Only in the human realm, with a precious human body, can enlightenment be obtained. So no matter how absolutely glorious the God realm seems, and we've all been in it one way or another at some point or other, and I'm sure most of us have mistaken it for the real thing at some point, at some time, one way or another. Um, but constant vigilance and uh, sangha yeah, relationships yeah. are necessary to help keep this straight. And teachers, you know, one function of a good teacher is to say, no, this isn't it. Yeah. <laughs> keep going. Exactly. It's nice, but it gets nicer. Exactly. <laughs> and just keep practicing. Exactly. At one point, you're having, I, th- I think there's, if you look around, there's really a secret to spiritual teaching, and the, the secret is that every bit of advice, more or less, seems to come down to the idea, keep practicing. Right. <laughs> that seems very, very wise, and part of the value of spiritual teachers is, is to kind of, you know, give you a whack on the backside and say, well, wait a minute, that's that's all very nice, and that's fantastic, and that's the same way I felt when I had my 14th Satori. But there are 50 more, there are 100 more, there are 1,000 more. And don't you dare stop with that, because that's a very limited understanding. Yeah, there's there's always more. Yeah, that seems to be the theme song for, yeah. for spiritual practice and, yeah. and learning for, for development, I suspect. Yeah, I think so too. And I have probably looked at the world's developmental scales, all of them, as much as anybody alive. And I can find no compelling reason that there's a top level. Yeah. And even if there were, we certainly aren't there, so (laughs) we might as well keep keep practicing. And then you point out something important. However, there is a further reason to be wary of the trap of complacency and stagnation. This further reason concerns the very nature of the mind. One of the most profound, important, and recurrent findings of spiritual disciplines, contemporary psychotherapy, in psychedelic research is that the mind contains an inherent developmental drive towards growth. 
given appropriate conditions and practices, the mind tends to be self-healing, self-actualizing, self-transcending, and self-liberating. Together, these point to a crucial capacity and dynamic of mind, a developmental drive towards finding and fulfilling the mind's potentials. And so complacency and stagnation is a violation of this most fundamental drive of the mind itself. Yes, and it's amazing how often that principle gets rediscovered particularly in contemporary psychology. And as you pointed out when we were talking about this once before, you know, this goes back to Aristotle right. as well, of course, to spiritual traditions. And it came up, comes up again or came up again when there was a lot of psychedelic research being done. That, right. uh, one of the, it's, it's just a consistent uh, discovery that comes up. And, of course, uh, as Maslow pointed out so well, where drives are thwarted or not honored, then pathology arises. Exactly, and that's the the next section you have here where you say, Abraham Maslow made the key point that the failure to fulfill an innate drive of any kind can result in pathology, and that the failure to fulfill the drive to grow is no exception. He went further to describe an array of metapathologies, subtle forms of suffering that come at higher developmental levels, such as alienation, anomie, and existential malaise, the loss of meaning and purpose. The tricky thing about metapathologies, which result from failures of growth, is that they and their cause will probably go unrecognized. Our culture has no understanding of them. Psychology is only beginning to plumb the higher reaches of maturity and so overlooks them, and sophisticated spiritual ideas are little known. One of the most important and painful questions of our time is this. How much of the psychological and spiritual suffering in contemporary affluent cultures is due to unrecognized failures of growth? We are a case of arrested development and don't know it, aren't we? It's, uh, well, I think, yeah, that certainly seems to be the way it is. Um, and uh, we're suffering from it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think... As with so many things, a developmental perspective lends uh, new interpretations to a lot of ideas and, and a lot of situations and global problems. And right. certainly so many of the cultural, individual and collective uh, sufferings and uh, problems, in fact, some of the global ones seem to reflect developmental immaturities and the failure to honor this uh, push to growth or pull right. to growth. Right. And as we will run into a little bit later, too, when we return to the problems around development, the fact that development itself is so little recognized or understood or acknowledged in this culture means that the means of curing this problem aren't recognized. Their cause and their cure are basically, we're ignorant of them. And yeah, that is just horrible. Yes, and you've talked so centrally, particularly, I think, of the Atman project of the right. trap of substitute gratifications, but, of course, there are also uh, substitute therapies. Right. <laughs> in, you know, you know, and in some cases, substitute gratifications and substitute therapies are the same thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, still fussing about in the finite realm, looking for that which is infinite and pretending one has found it. Connected with metapathologies are metadefenses. While the mind has an innate eros or drive towards growth, it also has active defenses against it. Moreover, these defenses extend into transpersonal and spiritual levels. 
De Soil described what he called the repression of the sublime, while Angel described the evasion of growth. Abraham Maslow went as far as to coin a new term, the Jonah complex, the fear of one's own greatness. He pointed out that we fear our best as well as our worst, even though in different ways. He also warned that, I love this quote, if you deliberately plan to be less than you are capable of being, then I warn you that you will probably be unhappy all the days of your life. And Pretty that, strong warning, isn't it? Absolutely. And um, it is a, probably a good way to describe the unhappy sectors of this culture. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And, uh, of course, as you said, but unrecognized, uh, the cause be, cause remain. That, yeah. that cause, of course, there are many... There are many causes for the sufferings in individuals and culture, right. but, right. but that cause is rarely recognized. Yeah. So overcoming complacency and avoiding stagnation seems to require two things. The first requirement is that we not settle for the seductions that come with growth. The second is that we recognize and overcome active meta-defenses against growth. Complacency can be a doubly seductive trap with non-dual teachings, and I think here we get into an extremely important point. These teachings emphasize, for example, the non-duality of samsara and nirvana, and also always already, the realization that we always already are that which we seek. In other words, we always already are enlightened. These teachings can be interpreted as implying that no spiritual practice or work is necessary. This is a tricky trap which results in movements such as Bitsen or talking Advaita, both of which use non-dual arguments to justify not practicing traditional spiritual disciplines. However, a close look at the texts of both Zen and Advaita Vedanta make clear that they both assume the need for rigorous, multidimensional disciplines. This is um, a really horror, an easy stance to fall into, Krishnamurti's followers did it all the time, but a really crippling error and a crippling understanding of what always already means, isn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, it's very seductive, and it's it's becoming, I think, even more seductive at this time because uh, I, I think so. Non-dualism has uh, gotten the rap as being, quotes, the highest uh, teaching right. or perspective. So, of course, we all want to be non-dual. Right. And uh, <laughs> it lends itself to these kind of traps. And just it's just a unfortunate seduction. There's a koan in Zen that says, if there is any discipline in the Tao, the completion of that discipline marks the destruction of the Tao. However, if there is no discipline, one remains an idiot. <laughs> and the, the talking Advaita and Dharmabhum's schools leave out that second part. No practice, you remain an idiot. And it is called the gateless gate because it's just that. It looks like a gate on this side, but not on that side. But you have to get on that side in order to see the gateless part hmm. of the always already truth. Yes. Prior to that, it, this is, and I, I agree, I think it is uh, spreading, and I think it is uh, kind of catching on, and it is really hurting a lot of people. This is a really fundamental area where this misunderstanding about 
the nature of practice and about the nature of awakening and about the nature of self-liberation is really coming back to hurt people and simply taking a kind of literalistic, I don't have to do anything, I'm already enlightened, is really disastrous. Now, ultimately, in terms of absolute truth, that is absolutely right. And as you point out, if you have fully realized that nirvana and samsara are one, and you continually rest in ever-present awareness throughout day and night, then by all means continue to rest in that awareness. However, if like me, these non-dual perspectives are at best only occasional recognitions, then we need to practice. And people telling us that we don't are truly hurting our awakening. Mm. Yes, and again, a good teacher is a wonderful antidote to these kind of mistakes. Yeah. There's a part of the psyche, namely that part which is the direct manifestation of the always already free self, of the already enlightened self, that when it reads these kinds of teachings, directly and immediately responds to them. Mm-hmm. You know, and gets the truth in them and, and goes, yeah, I get that, I get that. It's why Krishnamurti's followers, you know, all they do is read Krishnamurti's books. And they're beautiful because he really was talking from a position of Mahaati, of non-dual, always already, ever-present presence. And the beauty of that position. But that beauty is really true only in the, in the absolute realm. And it's not true in the relative realm. Your own relative being hasn't fundamentally awakened to that truth. And so until that has happened, as you point out, the need for practice is ever-present. And so about the only thing you can say to convince some of these people, however, is, okay, fine, don't practice. Get back to me five years from now. Mm. Let me know. If you are 24 hours a day plunged into constant consciousness so that you are witnessing every single thing and event that arises through waking, dreaming, and deep sleep states. And if you are doing that, excellent. But if not, you wasted five years of practice. Mm. But it's not too late to start. Yeah, another and another one that I've heard is also, well, if if you have no suffering, then fine. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But there aren't a lot of people who pass that (laughs) test. Certainly not me. This recommendation has been summarized humorously in several ways. Suzuki Roshi commented, you're perfect just the way you are, and you could use some improvement. Likewise, a Christian humorist suggested that God loves you just the way you are, and loves you far too much to let you remain that way. I think uh, that was Annie Lamont, <laughs> but, I, but I couldn't find the reference. <laughs> also a contemporary American Roshi said, um, enlightenment is an accident. Meditation makes you accident-prone. Ah, uh, yes. And as Baker Roshi, and that's a very, very good way to look at it. Enlightenment is an accident in that sense. Nothing causes it. It's not a temporal result if it was the result of some cause then it wouldn't be eternal it would be merely temporal so in terms of something causing it it looks like an accident but meditation does make you accident prone and that's the point of practice and the point of you know what we want to make sure that people don't get confused about this and miss out on their own awakening Mm mm-hmm and just to, 
to uh, nuance that. Um, I have a little bit of an allergy to to words like awakening and enlightenment because they're inherently prone to prone to misinterpretation. It can sound like it's just a dualistic uh, or, or it's dichotomous rather. But right. you know, you're either asleep or you're awake or you're enlightened or not right. enlightened. And I think one of the best metaphors you or examples you that I've ever heard was one you you gave me where you said, well, you know, enlightenment's like, are you educated or you're not educated? Well, sure, I'm partially educated. Are you right. fully educated? Of course not well you're enlightened well maybe a little bit but are you full? of course not you know? yeah fully educated and, has no meaning exactly <laughs> so, and, uh, and enlightenment even more so because not only is it not dichotomous either full-on or not but what's often you know these these various awakening experiences are really only in in most cases touching or having impacting some developmental lines and not others. Right. So it's much, you know, this whole process of development and growth, especially transpersonal growth, is so much richer and more multidimensional and multilayered than single terms like enlightenment or awakening can do justice to. Yeah, definitely. And all of these, in a sense, are traps, not understanding. I mean, not understanding enlightenment is one of the biggest traps out there. And we could go on and on and on and on about the errors concerning enlightenment, but certainly the notion that it is a finished and complete condition uh, or plateau experience is just not true. Every enlightened experience you have, even if you have the permanent dropping of the separate self-sense, can be deepened. There is just no limit to how deep the infinite is, and continued practice gives you continued access to deeper and deeper dimensions of that which is essentially infinitely deep. So go ahead and practice, get started, and discover the condition of all conditions, but don't mistake it as a endpoint. And since you mentioned that, uh, that would, if you haven't already done it, that would be a wonderful topic sometime, the fallacies of enlightenment. Well, maybe we'll come back and do that sometime. All right. And then the last part of part one are uh, possible antidotes to stagnation. Several possible antidotes to stagnation are available, including the following. And I'll just read them and then we can discuss them. Awareness, growth-oriented relationships, teachers, and regular sustained practice. So the first, awareness, specifically awareness of the recurrent seduction of complacency. Awareness is healing, and the awareness that complacency will likely remain a recurrent seduction throughout spiritual life may prove a partial safeguard. certainly seems to be a place to start, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think, you know, that's one of the gifts of the uh, conceptual framework uh, that Integral offers. It at least points to some of the things we need to be aware of and, and wary of. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Growth-oriented relationships. Relationships dedicated to growth can constitute one of the best bulwarks against stagnation. Such relationships can consist of couples, groups, or communities. And as we saw, they consist of two or more people giving themselves the permission to tell the truth in that relationship. And that's certainly going to help with stagnation as well, isn't it? Hopefully so. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I mean realistically, I think yes, it can. Of course, as as we all know, any uh, any relationship or or community can become collusive in stagnation. Right. 
but uh, one hopes right. that this combination of safeguards, the list you just read and probably others, will at least you know help us safeguard some. Yeah, indeed. Teachers. Teachers offer a further antidote. Those who have progressed further on the path and are available to share their discoveries and warn against pitfalls can be invaluable. Of course, this is not to say that relationships with teachers, as with relationships of any kind, are immune to traps. Nonetheless, it is um, certainly one of the best antidotes we have. Yeah, an authentic teacher is such a gift. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's really unfortunate that uh, the whole notion of guru has been, you know, so misunderstood and so stigmatized. There are many, many problems with uh, guru in a traditional relationship, but just the notion of a teacher that knows more than I know, at least temporarily, on this path is such a gift, as you say, and it's, it's just criminal not to be able to take advantage of those wonderful teachers that are out there. And in regular sustained practice, this may be one of the most important of all antidotes. I've seen some very impressive friends and colleagues fall into traps of stagnation, depression, and alcoholism. One of the common factors seemed to be that they had given up their daily spiritual practice. Daily spiritual practice is not only a way to work on deepening one's own always already awareness, but in a certain sense, it's just an offering of gratitude to one's highest self. And stopping doing that can really invite some dark shadows into your life. Yeah, and I got very interested in this because I saw people who were really impressive falling into these kind of traps. And I realized if they could end up in stagnation or alcoholism or depression, then there was no reason. I I couldn't pretend I was immune to these. Yeah. Uh, so I became very interested in finding out what was behind their, you know, their falls, and it really did seem, in each case, the thing that really struck me was in each case, every one of them said, I stopped my daily practice. Oh, man, that's so telling. So, yeah, well, let that stand as its own warning. Potential benefits and traps. I have been emphasizing the dangers or traps on the integral path. However, traps can also have their benefits. Traps can be stopping points or stepping stones depending on whether they remain unrecognized and denied or are recognized and faced. If unrecognized, these traps may constitute aspects of our individual and collective integral shadows. Then they will enact their toll and result in pathology, stagnation, and ineffectiveness. However, if recognized, these same traps become opportunities for learning, healing, and growth. As the Kulinarva Tantra states, by what people fall, by that they rise. Recognizing these traps and making sure we can use them to rise is going to be a recurring challenge for each of us personally and for the integral movement as a whole. Fortunately, these traps are challenges that we can learn from, help each other with, and then create maps to help those who come after us to carry the integral vision into the future. And that's a beautiful way to end that 